Hi there, and welcome to this episode of The Experiential Table. In last week's episode, I shared my thoughts on the future of online experiences. From virtual cooking classes to even product launches, there are so many opportunities to connect with your audience online. And even when events come back to the physical world, I still think we'll use online platforms in these new ways. There's really no going back to business as usual. Well, today's episode is a very special one. In fact, it's the first of a three-part series where I'll be interviewing food business owners who have made the transition to online experiences, especially in the wake of COVID-19. To kick things off, I'm excited to be interviewing our guest, Hethel Vasavida of Milk and Cardamom. She's a successful cookbook author, blogger, and much, much more. Trust me, you will be so inspired when you hear all that she's done. So if you're considering launching online classes for your brand, whether big or small, then you'll want to listen up and take notes. Hethel has so much knowledge to share thanks to her experience successfully launching and teaching her own series of classes online. We'll also dive into her savvy ability to hone in on a niche to grow her business. I cannot wait to jump right into this conversation. Let's do it. Hello, Hethel. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So everyone, let me tell you a little bit about our guest, Hethel. She is a San Francisco-based cookbook author and blogger at Milk and Cardamom. Her recipes have been featured in the New York Times, Food 52, and The Kitchen. Hethel's cookbook was named one of the best cookbooks of 2019 by the San Francisco Chronicle and The Washington Post. Pretty impressive. When she's not blogging and writing, Hethel consults on recipe development for brands including Brava Home, Imperfect Produce, Renewal Mills, and more. And if that's not enough, she is also a freelance social media manager for Bay Area restaurants, a food stylist, and a food photographer. Most recently, Hethel launched her live online cooking classes. Her classes have collected rave reviews from participants and continue to fill up quickly. As a longtime fan of Hethel and her work, I couldn't help but reach out to learn all about her move into the world of online experiences. So Hethel, let's start in the beginning. I know that you haven't always worked in food professionally. So can you share more about how you got into the food space? Yeah. So I feel like it's just been like a very long road to getting to where I am now. Like a lot of, I guess, immigrant children, we all kind of learned how to cook from our parents. Um, And when I was in college, my parents lost their jobs. And when they did, I started actually cooking out of my dorm room and selling plates of food to pay for school, pay for my books, and then eventually pay for my rent. Wow. So cooking was like kind of like a, I knew it was a skill I can monetize and I'm going to do that. And a couple of stints of like wine cooking in the back of pizzerias and uh, whatnot later, I graduated with a degree in biochemistry, went and got a master's and ended up in the healthcare field. And I absolutely hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I always loved food. I actually started a blog when I was in college to keep track of all my recipes, like not for anyone to read, like the photos from that blog were atrocious. Like <laughs> was everything yellow, just tint yellow. <laughs> oh my God. Like super close up with like super highlights. Cause I was doing it under my yellow, like, you know, lights and it just did not look good at all. Like I was like, ain't nobody going to look at this. This is just for me. <laughs> right. Right. But then that eventually led to me blogging a little bit further. And also my husband pushing me to quit my job because you could see like how miserable I was. I would actually like bake cakes for my team. So I worked as a healthcare consultant out here. Um, I moved out here eight years ago to work as a healthcare consultant. And um, I would like bake fail cakes. Like if our team didn't meet our goals, I'll bake us a cake to make us feel better. (laughs) Like <laughs> it's cool. And then I'd had like wind cakes, which are like way more elaborate. Um, and I got to be known as a girl who bakes for the office. Cause I would just bring, I would bake over the weekend and just bring it into the office consistently. I did things like bread week or like every day I was baking a different type of bread and bringing it into the office. Wow. Yeah. My coworkers were very well fed. It was also what I learned a very good way to get on the CEO and board's radar because they will notice who is bringing all these sweets and desserts into the office and bringing up morale in the office. Yeah. Were your coworkers <laughs> ever like, Ethel, like, why are you here? You should open up a bakery. I mean, I have to imagine that came up a few times. It did. It came up quite a lot. They're like, what are you doing? Why, what, you should just go into food. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't have a, like, a culinary degree. And I think many Asian, or in general, uh, I guess like people assume they need to have a degree in whatever they are pursuing. I think it's an East coast mentality for sure. Um, that like, if you want to go to, if you want to be in food, you have to have a culinary degree. And I realized when I came out here that that was not the case. I mean, I was working beside a history major in a healthcare consulting firm. <laughs> yeah. It, I totally can relate. I mean, I grew up in a Persian home and, you know, my parents immigrated from Iran and I was, you know, first generation and, and you're absolutely right. Like we kind of are trained to believe that to be the best at something, you must pursue the highest education possible in that field. And of course, like being in food was never something my parents encouraged me to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was Same. like, go get a quote, real job, right? But it sounds <laughs> like you and I both decided to just ditch that and yeah. have been able to figure it out. So. Yeah. My husband actually ended up getting in, in 2015, he got a in uh he got a rotation in Singapore through his job and he was going to be there for for uh for 3 to 4 months and while he was there a month into him being there he's like just quit and come meet me in Singapore and i'm like i can't do that i come from a very low income background um my dad uh had a, has a third grade education level and um my mom has like 10th grade education level so we're very risk averse. The idea of possibly not making an income is very scary to me. Yeah. Um, and my husband does not come from that background. He comes with like, you know, uh, upper middle class background. So risk to him is like, it's okay. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So did you end up going to Singapore? I did. I quit. I showed up. Um, I literally danced out of my office. Like we (laughs) turned on the music. I had another girlfriend who ended up quitting the same time as me. So we like turned on the music really loud at the end of the day and like danced our way out of the office. Um, (laughs) It was great. 
And uh, that whole summer, I actually considered starting a cookie business. I even went to far so far as to like having people come and doing focus groups and figuring out like what kind of cookies people like. Or do they want crispy, crunchy? What flavors are, are they like into? Like more spice forward Indian style flavors, or do they want to stick to like chocolate chip cookies and funfetti? And then my husband had a chance to go to Europe for work. So he's like, just come with me. And when we came back for like a couple of days before Europe, he actually had to push me to apply for MasterChef. Like the actual TV show. Yeah. Like the cooking show MasterChef. <laughs> That's crazy. So the reason was because I didn't have the confidence to like actually do something. I was like, like in order to own a restaurant or have any sort of food business, you have to have some sort of ego to be like, you need to buy my food or what I've made. Like it's like, you have to have that confidence and ego in your, in what you make. Right. And I didn't have that. And he's like, cause like to me, I was like, my family and my friends are always going to tell me my food tastes good. Right. I want like a legit honest opinion. So MasterChef was the way to do that. He's like, go see how you like compare against other amateur home cooks. And if you don't make it, you can go back to healthcare, just work for a startup or something instead of corporate. And if you do make it, then let's see where this goes. And I did, which I did not expect at all. Wow. (laughs) So you were on the show and you definitely had people tell you what they thought about your food who were not your friends, right? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. They made me cry a couple of times. Luckily, I never got yelled at for having raw meat from Gordon Ramsay. That was like my biggest fear of hearing like, it's raw. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is he is he as like intimidating as he seems in real life? He has like disappointed dad energy. <laughs> just with one look, shakes yeah. his head, and you just know you've failed. Yeah. Like you just know, and then like it's because like he knows you can do better. Disappointed dad energy. I know exactly what that means. And I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners do too. <laughs> but that definitely sounds about right. So how far did you get on MasterChef? Spoiler alert. I mean, yeah. it's, it's been, it was, it was a while ago, right? So we can talk about it. Yeah. It was five years ago, season six. I made it to the top six, actually. So two episodes from the finale. I ended up being on every episode because they brought me back to sous chef for the finals or pre-finals, I guess. And then obviously I was there for the finals, but it was such a like unique experience because like there were times where like, there were some people that I thought were amazing chefs who would be like, Gordon Ramsay would ask them, like, who's your number one competitor? And they'd point at me and I'm like, me? (laughs) I can't even cook one entire food group. Like, I don't cook meat. (laughs) Like, how am I that person? Wow. So, and how long was that whole process? I'm always curious about those shows. Like, is it truly week after week and, and you're there for that period of time? Or do they kind of film it all in a condensed period? They film it all condensed. It was a three month project. So I left like January 6th. And I came home, um, a little bit like around like end of March. That's still a long time. Yeah. And you're sequestered. You get no phone. They take your phone the moment you land at the airport. You have uh, wranglers that take you to and from the hotel and lock you to in your room. Wow. Okay. We need to do a whole episode just on this. I mean, yeah. I, I wanted to make sure we talked about it because I think it's such a unique thing for you to to go through and just for us to hear about. But yeah, that's incredible. So you went from baking fail cakes for your coworkers at your healthcare company to being on a show with Gordon Ramsay, 
and then you come back to the Bay Area, right? And and now what? I mean, are you are you going all in on food? Like, what's your appetite for risk after that experience? Uh, my risk was still fairly minimal because what happened is, and what I didn't expect or realize was the trolls come out uh, on Twitter and Reddit and Facebook and you know social media in general. And oh well. You know, her food is not Indian enough, or it's too much Indian food. How can she be Master Chef? She only cooks one meal, and I'm like, or one cuisine. And I'm like, it took me a while to like get my head out of that. But what I did do is, I I knew for a fact that I needed to utilize Master Chef and take that 15 seconds of fame and gain a following because they make you sign a three year contract, which means that they have basically the ability to stop you from doing any sort of business and like you have to ask permission if you want to be do anything in the food industry and then they can say yes or no like I wanted to do pop-ups with Beastly at the time and they said no because they had signed a deal with um some other like similar company so you had to really kind of navigate how to grow in food but still do so within the purview of of MasterChef so did you at that time start Milk and Cardamom or had that blog already existed no, so I was actually under Pretty Polymath. So fun fact, I used to do a lot of beauty vlog, uh, videos on YouTube because back in 2011, 12, there weren't many brown beauty bloggers that I saw. And I started doing videos on YouTube about like finding lipsticks that match my skin tone, finding makeup that works for my skin tone, you know, skincare products that like deal with issues that, you know, darker skin or melanated skin deals with, which is like sometimes you have uneven skin tone, things like that. And then when I um, started working, when I was like very, very upset about my job, I stopped doing it. But I have like a whole, like a whole group of videos on YouTube (laughs) that I like just went and hid recently. But yeah, I went, it just kind of all went from pretty polymath, which is like beauty, food, lifestyle, travel, everything. And then I just focused on food after MasterChef. And I changed the name to Milk and Cardamom after I had my daughter, which I found out I was pregnant the day the episode of me getting kicked off the show aired. Wow. What a range of emotions. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I took a year off because I had a really horrendous pregnancy. Um, I was like really, really sick throughout all nine months. And during that time, I actually was just doing small work, things that I knew I could do. So I started recipe consulting with Back to the Roots, which is a um, uh, small brand. Oh, not small anymore, but it was at the time in Oakland where they did they do cereals and then like mushroom in a box kits and plant kits. I started doing recipes. So a lot of my recipes are actually on the back of their containers and on their website. And through them, through word of mouth, I got a lot of other jobs with other startups. Um, I worked with Imperfect Foods when they first started doing recipe stuff for them. Um, Brava, which is like a smart oven. But yeah, it all turned out to be word of mouth. It was all word of mouth. Right, right. And I especially, I know at least being in the Bay Area as well, I mean, there are so many companies here who, you know, it, people move quickly and they jump from company to company and they refer talent. And so it's not a huge surprise to hear that you were able to grow through word of mouth, but also I'm sure at that point you were not really looking back at your old life, right? Like no. it, 
sounds like it snowballed and the opportunities continued to come in and to become bigger and bigger. Exactly. It just became bigger and bigger. My blog started doing bigger and bigger and I made a conscious effort to grow my social media. I took a bunch of social media um, courses on like Udemy and stuff to really understand how I can make the best of it. Because once MasterChef is done airing, they're worrying about the next set of contestants. I'm like old news, right? Right. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So when you created Milk and Cardamom, you that was your new blog. Had you set out to focus purely on kind of your take on Indian cuisine or even desserts? How did you define or even decide what your niche was going to be for your content? Honestly, it was a lot of like trial and error. Initially, it was just me posting. Like, if you look at my old recipes, it's all over the place. And then what I noticed is when I started posting the desserts that I would come up with, like on MasterChef, I did like a Indian, I did a couple Indian inspired uh, desserts. I did a cinnamon roll with chai masala inside of it with like an uh, espresso topping. And then I did um, my entry to get into the show was uh, Indian spiced apple pie with like a cardamom whipped cream. And at the time, cardamom was like just <laughs> being noticed. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the turmeric, you know, all of a sudden turmeric is everywhere and you're like, huh, interesting. Like yeah. it's been in my parents' kitchen for a year. <laughs> exactly. And then you start seeing it all over Great British Bake Off where like everyone's got cardamom and everything. Um, but it's always just been my favorite like spice. I added to everything because a lot of times we didn't have vanilla in our house. So my mom would just like give me cardamom to put in stuff. But yeah, I essentially started the blog just to put recipes out there and create content to share with people that were following me from MasterChef. And then eventually I realized I was, I was hitting a lot of notes. Um, and a lot of people were engaging more with my Indian desserts that I, were, that I was doing. And I realized that's, that's the niche I need to go towards and decided to just set myself up in that spot. I realized that no one else had done there aren't many Indian dessert books out there in the first place or Indian dessert focused bloggers. So I was like, this works. And also sweets in general. This is like also what Christina Tosi has done. She hits on all that nostalgic flavors of your childhood. And her flavors are not my flavors of childhood, but there is a whole group of immigrant, uh, like, you know, second generation, first generation Indian Americans that have grown up on the things that I've grown up with. And, I started realizing that when people would message me like, oh my God, like, you know, your trisomen rolls really reminded me of this or your story about Goofy reminded me of this. And I'm like, oh, there's like a whole population of us out there. And it really got proven when like, um, I think Priya's book first came out, Priya Krishna's book, Indian Nish came out and how popular that was. And then I was like, and my book came out a couple months later, but which, by the way, was very popular too, and is still popular. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, like me and her, we would like tell each other, like, "Oh yeah, Indianish is like the savory version of my book," and she would be like, "Oh yeah, milk and cardamom is the dessert version of my book," because they would put our books next to each other in bookstores often, because they just, I guess, it matches very well. People do cook out of her book and my book together quite often. It took time, but I, my audience let me know very quickly that like this is what they were. Um, engaging with most, commenting on most, sending me messages, and also recreating them. Which is like so exciting, right? As someone who writes recipes, like that's your ultimate goal, right? Yeah. Is to actually get people to make it, not just like your photo. Yeah. 
I was like absolutely blown away at like how many people were creating recipes from my blog at the time. And it was like, okay, interesting. And I would say just in the last year, it's just gotten, it's just grown even more. I don't even know like what I could really narrow it all down to other than I think hitting a spot in memory and like just letting like people know like, yeah, your experience was the same as mine and I see you and you see me. Right. Well, and you're really consistent too. Like I have to say, you know, I of course follow you on Instagram and you, you show up like a a lot and you share (laughs) a lot about your life personally too, which I think people love, like they feel like they know you. And I, I think that goes a long way. We'll, we'll talk about it later, but you created your online classes on a platform that you had spent years building. So it wasn't an overnight thing. And I think that's something that for people listening who are really excited about the virtual class world, whether it's cooking classes or another type of experience, you have to have an audience and you have invested the time to build that so that when you did launch your classes, it didn't fall on deaf ears. So yeah, uh, I think that's a big lesson here for people who are looking to do something similar. I guess with your niche, what I also find interesting, and I love your thoughts on this too, is you, so it sounds like it evolved over time uh, and that you kind of let the feedback from your audience help guide it. But I guess in terms of like what you were always drawn to, it sounds like from the very beginning, dessert was kind of your jam, right? Yeah. I mean, to the biochem major in me, yes, very much so. It's very accurate, precise. Um, And I know like if I use the same ingredients, I will get the same exact outcome every single time. If I follow the directions, the method and technique, I know I can get it. And I like cooking being free form. I always struggle with that because I'm like, well, I want to make exactly how I made it last time. But if I don't have those measurements, it drives me insane. I think it's just the whole idea of having like precise measurements that like, I guess, satisfies me so well. Yeah. I think what I'm realizing in talking with you now is that I think a lot of people have that niche in them already. Like they know what that thing is, mm-hmm. but it's scary to just come out and say, this is what I'm doing, right? Like it feels limiting when in fact it actually helps bring the right people to your platform and in a way it can actually be freeing, right? But at first I'm sure you were kind of scared, which is perhaps why you tried all these different recipes and then they kept telling you, no, I want more Indian desserts. And that's what you've settled on. Yeah, it it definitely is like scary because you're like, oh, am I neglecting other audiences or followers? Is my audience going to actually like, is audience that can't relate to it still be into it? And what I learned very... I would say in the last year is like, you're not going to be able to create content that feeds everyone. Not everything I make is going to relate to everyone. I can't be everything. Like I ask often on my Instagram stories, like, Oh, what kind of recipes are you guys looking for? Um, What would you like me to add to my like next week's, um, I don't know, Instagram TV, like lives or whatever. And they're always asking for, you know, can you do fusion Mexican Indian or, (laughs) you know, Ethiopian? I'm like, listen, there are plenty of fusion Indian bloggers out there. I don't need to share these recipes. How about you go to them? Yeah. Uh, But I think early on, 
early Hethel would have been like, yeah, I'm on it. Right. Right. It's say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. And at some point you do have to start saying no. And I think that's really helped define your position in this space. And one thing I've noticed too, with your desserts is that correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's kind of a mix of old and new, right? So you're taking traditional Indian desserts, but you're applying like a very like modern or refreshed take on it. Is that right? Yeah. I would say that I would say a lot of my desserts are very heavily rooted in Indian dessert techniques, like toasting flowers or creating fudges using nuts and simple syrups, but then giving them a more modern look and take so that it looks new, but the flavors and the textures are very similar to what the original traditional item would be. And also even like more accessible, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I know that some Persian desserts, like we would never make at home, we would buy at the bakery because... Zalebi? Yeah, exa- exactly. I like, I mean, I remember we would fry those. We would make those at home and similar to... Some of the recipes you shared, like we use a lot of rose water and cardamom, but uh, but yeah, like even just for the like my wedding last year, we got married in France and we had to find a Persian bakery in Paris, which there were like two. But my mom was like, "I'm going to make the baklava myself in our Airbnb," <laughs> and she literally like wanted to bring phyllo dough from the U.S. and was trying to figure out ways to keep it frozen and. Such she was going to grind all the nuts in the U.S. and bring it over, and finally we found a bakery. I was like, "Mom, you are not." It was during the heat wave in France last year. Like, we are not baking baklava in a ninety degree apartment on like in the middle of Paris. Like, we're just going to find a place. But you know, things like that where those recipes are still really challenging, even for someone like me who loves to cook and bake. But I think what you've done is you created. You could talk about like the bunt cake that you that you shared, right? That is inspired by a recipe that's so much more complicated, right? Um, and you've you've simplified it and you've shared those same flavors and those memories, but in a way that's much more accessible. Yeah, the that I think would have to be like the most viral recipe from my cookbook. Um, <laughs> it's gulab jamun bunt cake. So gulab jamun, for those you might not know, is basically a donut that is soaked in a simple syrup but it's not made from like a yeasted dough it's made from a mixture of flour koya or mawa which is basically milk fat combined together so it has a very like dense kind of structure to it and it's very sweet and really really good (laughs) really really hard to make like when you're rolling the dough out if there's any cracks or seams in the dough it will explode in in the ghee because you fry it in ghee um, at a low temperature. If you fry it at a, too high of a temperature, the outside will turn black and the inside will be raw. You have to oh, like no. <laughs> like there's a lot of like techniques and down like I think I tried at least ten to fifteen gulab jamun recipes because initially I was like I'm gonna put a traditional gulab jamun recipe in my book, and then I was like never mind after fi- fifteen tries because I was like if I'm struggling, I'm pretty sure the everyday cook is gonna struggle. Yeah. Um, so I was like looking and racking my brain, like, what are some, like, the te- based on the texture and all that, like, what are some comparable desserts? And I thought of pound cake because it's dense. And I've had pound cakes that are like soaked in, like, you have like the rum soaked pound cakes in the yep. so I was like, 
what if I just use the original gulab jamun syrup, which is like has um, saffron and cinnamon and cardamom in it, and soak that into a cardamom pound cake. And it took me a couple tries just to get like the um, ratios right because the typical pound cake is like you know one to one to one flour, butter, sugar, eggs. That's what makes it so good. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I changed mine up just a little bit so I can get the right texture, and it like it was so good. And I ended up. Um, I think it's probably the most made recipe out of my book, most shared recipe out of my book. Well, it's beautiful too. You have the rose petals on top, right? The way yeah. you garnish it, like it looks so wow worthy. Like you would want to bring it to a dinner party and yet you've made it something that people can actually make in their kitchen. And I've also seen it as something that you teach mm-hmm. as part of your online classes. So let's get into that. Uh, perhaps we can take a step back and rewind to when COVID-19 hit and what was kind of going through your head around teaching online? So I actually had done some teaching classes when I did my book tour last year. So I did some classes at um, Civic Kitchen here in San Francisco, um, William Sonoma and a bunch of other places just for the book tour. And I had gotten comfortable teaching stuff from my book at that point, but I never thought about taking it to the internet. My actual endeavor was to start selling my desserts online. I even had like my deposit down at the commissary. You know, the the state had cashed my check for permitting, but they hadn't come yet to permit the kitchen I wanted to work out of. And my goal was to actually open in May. So I had actually canceled all of my clients because I did social media management for a lot of restaurants. I actually had let them all know, like, by the way, I'm leaving because I'm going to focus on this business that I want to start. So I was in this weird spot when COVID hit where I had no income coming from restaurants in general because the plan was to have income come from my my dessert business. Right, right. And I decided to just do an Instagram live the first week. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do a live and I'm going to teach people how to make cookie bars and they can like take what's in their fridge or in their pantry and add it in. So if you've got chocolate chips, you can use that. If you want to use nuts, you can use that. Whatever you have works. and then. It started like kicking off at that, after that first Instagram live. I was gaining over 1,300 followers on average every week on my Instagram. That's unbelievable. I remember you telling me that. And you, like I said before, you have been consistently posting and showing up for people. So it's not like you came out of nowhere. So the fact that like that's a, that's a huge increase. And do you think it's because of the sh- Instagram lives that you were doing? For sure. I often very much focused only on the food and rarely put my face on Instagram. If I did, it was probably because I needed to like, hey, algorithm, I'm here. Because um, <laughs> they favor faces, uh, which I don't know if it's true anymore, but I remember hearing that and I was like, eh, I'll try it. But I never really put too much of me on there. And Instagram Live really like, I was in front of the camera raw. You have Ilara running in the background. My husband's like doing some antics also in the background. Like it was unfiltered. <laughs> you know, in my pajamas majority of the time and no makeup. Um, And it just started growing. I started getting messages like, these are so helpful. I had done a survey after that first Instagram live asking people like, how familiar are you with baking? And it was like 80 plus percent were like absolute baking noobs. Wow. Because again, baking is not something you do in Indian culture too often. It's just not something that we learn. So I was like, all right, I'm going to start making easy recipes. 
from Instagram lives, people kept asking for more complicated recipes and especially my gulab jamun cake. But the thing is like that cake is for my cookbook and I didn't want to put it out there because I do want to encourage people. It's a business. I want to encourage people to buy my book, right? That's right. Buy the damn book. <laughs> yeah. So instead, my husband's like, just do a class. And someone had messaged me about this website called letshangin.com where you can like list a class and you could set it up. And my cousin's company has a Zoom account. So I was like, hey, can you schedule Zoom for me for me to do this class and make me like the uh, host? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Hustling. You got to be resourceful. I was like, I'm not paying for this right now. <laughs> yeah. So I did it and 12 people signed up initially and then I did it again. And every week I was filling up 20 or more per class. Wow. And you're charging for those classes, right? Yeah. I was charging 35 per class and each class usually ran between like an hour and a half to two hours, depending on like how savvy of a baker these, uh, most of the people were. Cause I would wait. The other thing is like, I don't want anyone to feel rushed when they're baking. So I would like sit and wait for them if they were like, hold on, I'm still mixing or I'm still doing this. I'm like, that's cool. We're not in a rush. Got it. So your the format of your cooking class then is to have people cook along versus you demoing and having them watch. Yeah. Cause that's what I do with my Instagram live initially is I would put up a survey. Like, what do you want to make? Do you want to make fresh pasta or do you want to make sandwich rolls? And then whatever they voted on, I would then share the ingredients that they need for it at least two days in advance and then do the live and they would actually cook or bake with me. And I didn't see anyone else doing that. Most people were just going live and just baking or cooking, but there was no like interaction. So I thought maybe sharing the ingredients and walking people through it step-by-step step might be a little bit easier. And then they feel like they're doing it with you. And like you said, I mean, it's, it's like a live in-person cooking class where if you're stuck, you can actually ask a question, but that's some commitment on their part. I mean, did you find that most of the students who showed up were ready to bake with you? Oh yeah. Like they would share their um, prep. I mean, people were ordering um, ingredients through my links, right? So I would know like how many people, like I would say, you really should use a scale for when we're baking bread. Here's a link to a good scale. Like it's a cheap scale, costs $10 on Amazon, right? right. And I, I saw like over two, 300 people going and getting it. Um, wow. Way to get that affiliate commission. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a dollar, right? Amazon. Yeah, but like, yeah, exactly. But like just kind of, you know, using those type of trackable links to gauge how many people are interested in things. And then from there, I narrowed it to like, people say they want savory stuff, but they don't tune in as often as they do when I do like sweet stuff. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, even on my Instagram, I noticed like anytime I post anything sweet, it does well. The only time savory stuff works for me is if it's something very traditional, like samosa or ro like roti or something very, very traditional. So I realized, okay, so that's not something that's bringing with people. It's either they want traditional savory or unique modern dessert. So I'm like, okay, cool. That, that's a good thing to know. So you had done the, the Instagram live and you had noticed like people were interested in this. And then you decided to launch your paid classes. So what was that transition like? I mean, did you just put a page up on your website? How did you decide how much to charge? Because that was still really early in this kind of world of online cooking classes. I mean, now people have a lot of examples to follow, but you, you had done this relatively early. Yeah. 
So I initially was going to charge way less. And then my husband's like, no, charge more. And most of the time he's right because I do undervalue. <laughs> and he's like, Hethel, you have a blog. You're on MasterChef. You can charge 35. <laughs> and I'm like, are you sure? There's other people charging less. And he's like, they don't have the same credentials. Some people are doing it for free, which yeah. it's, yeah, we, we can't all be teaching for free. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad to hear that you, you listen to him to charge more. I think most people end up charging under their yeah. value. And, and the thing is like people did sign up and I was like, wow, I'm surprised. Even before I did the classes, I actually started a Patreon and I started a very slow, like $3 Patreon tier and then I had a 20 and a $25 tier. My 20 and $25 tier both got sold out. So I was like, okay, okay, I can do the 35. And um, I started doing initially different classes every week. And then people kept asking, like, when's the cake, the gulab jamun cake class coming back? Do you have an eggless version? Which uh, about 36% of my audience was eggless. I did a survey on that too to figure out like what, if they have any dietary issues, like allergies or, you know, foods they might not eat for cultural or religious reasons. So I could also keep mind of that. And that was huge. This week I'm doing like an eggless pasta and eggless um, French macaron class, both sold out. Wow. Quick. The other thing is like online classes are so are good because you can set your limit. Like I set mine at 15 because I want to pay attention and a lot of people typically have questions, especially when you're doing something challenging, like making French macarons. So I limit it to like 15 people. But if you're doing a big class, I've, I've been in a class that had 75 people in it once. Whoa. It's a lot of Zoom, Zoom yeah. tiles. <laughs> yeah. I, I also eventually moved off less hang in. Then I tried doing Google Meet because that's free. Google Meet was horrendous. I kept getting kicked off, having issues. So I stopped that and I like finally caved and started using, um, I paid for Zoom because at that point I was like, it's $14 a month. I'm already making way more than that. It's worth it for me. Yeah. And for your students to have a good experience as well. And like even how long are your classes? Are they two hours? Or? Yeah, two hours. And then on top of that, I moved to Shopify so I could make the glitz hang in, took a lot of the, took a huge cut. So I wanted to be like, how can I keep most of the money for myself and be able to pay my taxes? Yeah. So it sounds like you're obviously very data-driven, Ethel. <laughs> yeah. you, you, like, you like your numbers and you did a lot of surveys to figure out your direction, but also it sounds like you went out there in like a pretty like low-tech way. Like you didn't invest a ton of money in building and a website or you use the tools that you had, whether it was your friends, you know, Zoom link or trying to do something with Google, um, which by the way, I had the same experience with Google Me and I think they're working on it, but it was, it was challenging. But then you got to a place where you were making real money and could actually like pay for tools and step up your, your marketing. Yeah. Now I'm like, oh, I record the classes. So then I can send you the link after so you have it. I feel like I went from like hustle, make it work to now like an actual setup where I know I can some way more professional looking. Right. Right. And how often are you teaching your classes? I do three a week. So I do one during the weekdays. So today I'm doing one at 4 p.m. where I'm doing a pesto and fresh pasta class. And then 
I do one Saturdays at noon and I do one on Sundays at noon. And every Sunday, it's the same class. I do the Gulab Jamun Cake class because that one just always sells out no matter what. And then it just gave me the confidence also to like move beyond online classes to actual products. So I started actually selling my own book on my website too, which I hadn't done. And now I'm like, I was an idiot. Why didn't I sell my own book? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you need that that boost. It's funny. Things that seem so obvious aren't at the, in the moment. Um, okay. So you're expanding a little bit outside of the Indian desserts then, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm hearing some Italian inspiration coming in. Well, I grew up in North Jersey with two nonas on either side of my house. Um, so we did a lot of like vegetable trading. They'd give us, you know, tomatoes and I'd give them like whatever Indian produce we were growing in our backyard, like Indian eggplants or okra or whatever. Um, I grew up in a very, very Italian town of like area of New Jersey. So I've had a lot of meals at friends' houses of fresh pasta and learning actually from them. Um, so this was just kind of my way. Also, we also learned how to make pasta on MasterChef. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I know I can confidently teach this. And if there if there's like a couple cuisines that in general Indians love, it's Italian and Mexican because everything can be made vegetarian. I see. So you're you're still really speaking to and attracting the same audience, right? But like they want more than just Indian desserts. Yeah. I didn't know that. I looked on your site and I was like, wait a minute, she's teaching eggless pasta. I I wasn't sure why, but that totally makes sense. So how are you marketing your classes then? Um, Because you said that they fill up quickly, which I've seen myself. I've been trying to get in. (laughs) It's a bit challenging. So how are you marketing your classes? Strictly Instagram. Okay. Yeah. Strictly on Instagram stories. I share every once in a while on my stories or I'll talk about it in my IG lives that I do. I did do a Facebook ad during the, for the first class that I did for Gulab Jamun Cake. And I didn't find it to be very helpful because I did, when, when people signed up, during the class, I asked, like, how did you guys find me? And most of them had followed me on Instagram already. So I was like, well, if they're following me, I don't see the need to pay for an ad just yet. I think right. when it starts trickling down and I get like, you know, I've like marketed to everyone possible and I've converted as many people I can convert from my following and current audience, then maybe I'll go to Facebook ads and see um, how to like expand it further beyond my audience. Another, it's like a lot of word of mouth too. Like, one person that may follow me will take the class and then they'll tell their cousins or friends or someone. Um, I've ended up getting more private classes. I hosted like three private classes this week and pretty much I'm booked till July because of these classes where like one person will take the class and they're like, oh, my friend's birthday is coming up. I'd love to do a class with you and her friends. Or my girlfriend's bachelorette got canceled and we were supposed to go to Spain. Can you do like a Spanish tapas class? And I'm like, well, I can do empanadas and like sangria. Is that cool? (laughs) With cardamom in it? Yeah. (laughs) So just kind of like going along the lines of turning customers that I've had into returning customers. I have a couple of people that have signed up for every single class I've done. They they just can't get enough. (laughs) So I'm like, this is interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. So what surprised you most about this? I mean, it sounds like you didn't have expectations coming into this experience of teaching online, but like looking back now, I mean, what are you most surprised by? One was how much putting myself and my family on social media 
and like my just normal everyday life on social media, whether it's like completely unfiltered would be received by people because I'm not a lifestyle blogger or influencer at all. Like people are like, I love your top. I'm like, cool. Thanks. It's from Walmart or like Costco. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not that person. So I always refrained from putting myself on anything really. Like I'm not the person to talk to my screen and like post up an Instagram story. Like I type it all out and then I like post it up. It's how I've always been. So it's been interesting to see people just kind of how they're like, I can relate or this brings me joy. I love seeing your like weird husband doing like weird things. (laughs) It started helping me grow, but also started making me realize that like, you know, I do have something to offer. And also I initially before, um, quarantine or not before, but like right in the early stages, I had mentioned how like so many people keep asking me for my recipes for my book. And then when I tell them it's in the book, they want me to just send them the recipe anyway, without paying for it. (laughs) And like how frustrating it can be and how much work is put into recipe writing. Cause a lot of people think that content creators just like throw stuff up and here it is like pay me. And that's not the case. Like we work behind the scenes redoing recipes so many times so that you don't mess it up in the one hour that you're doing it in your house. Right. And especially what you're creating, you're not riffing off of something that's been done before. Like you are really, like you said, taking 15 tries to to get it right. So yeah, I started sharing the behind the scenes process more and it actually made my followers realize the value in the work that I put into like my recipes and the classes that I do. Right. And the reviews, I mean, I've read them on your site. People love your class and it sounds like you do a really great job of explaining the steps and you know why things work the way they do because you know, because you developed the recipe, right? So you, it's like a whole package deal that they get when they sign up for the class. And I think that's, that's part of the experience. It's not just to get the recipe, to get the story and your perspective. And beyond that, like, it's also like proving your value. Like when I worked, um, I used to do social media for Humphrey Slocum, which is a high-end ice cream company here in San Francisco. And their pints typically sell for like 8 to $9 a pint, which is almost double than that of say Hagen does or even Ben and Jerry's. And they had to prove, especially in marketplaces where, you know, they don't have a brand presence like in Texas or Alaska, or, you know, like why is their pint worth $9? Or why should they even bother to buy it? And I started doing behind the scenes stuff, showing that all the mixings are handmade and going behind the scenes, showing how the fudge was made, how the strawberries for the strawberry ice cream was made um, for the jam and really sharing the behind the scenes story. And people started realizing like, oh no, this is not some like factory that's like, you know, pumping ice cream into little tubs and like moving on there. There's like a human element to this. Um, and they kind of understand the value of it then. And I think I took that same approach to my online classes is like, I'm spending a lot of time doing these recipes. Here's the first fail. Look at what happened, you know, and what I'm going to do the next time I make this recipe and like walk them through my process so that they're like, Oh yeah, she worked really hard on this and I will pay $35 for, to learn how to make it. Yeah. That's that's such a smart point. People don't know all of the work that goes behind it unless you tell them. And if they just see the final product, 
they don't know the blood, sweat, and tears that went into getting there. So that's that's a really, really good tip because I know people listening are passionate about their products, whether it's recipes or food products. Like they have put in the hard work to make it, but we don't do a good enough job of telling that story and proving the value, as you said. All right. Well, I have one more question for you, Hethel. I can't believe <laughs> I can't believe it's already time to wrap things up. But this is a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast and we get a range of answers. So I'm really excited to hear what you think when I ask you, what is the single most important element of an incredible experience? Connection. For me, it's creating that connection where I can relate to them and they can relate to me. Like during my online classes, I'll ask everyone, where are you guys from? How are you guys feeling today? Uh, talk about what's going on in my world, which is like, oh, my daughter's driving me nuts. What about you guys? Any of you got, got kids? Um, and just creating that connection because then by the end of that class, you feel like you're baked with friends. And it's that comfort level that you're looking for. You want to feel like they know you and you know them. Ah, that's such a good point. And honestly, it ties back to what you said earlier about putting yourself your actual face online, like you, you started that connection early, right? And so by the time they get to your class, they probably know more about you than you think. <laughs> They've seen your daughter, your husband, they kind of know what you're all about. And, and then you continue to connect with them in the online experience, which is really powerful and sets it apart, I'm sure, from other classes where it's just someone talking at them versus engaging them. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a fantastic answer. Thank you for sharing that. I know that, you know, without a doubt, uh, everyone who's listening to this podcast is going to be excited to check out your recipes by the book, I should say. Actually, by the book, people, <laughs> and sign up for your next class. So, where can people find you online? Where's the best place to go? So, you can find me on my website at milkandcardamom.com or on Instagram at milkandcardamom. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know I cannot wait to take one of your classes. I have uh, a baby girl coming soon in a few weeks. So I don't know if I can like squeeze it in between her naps. We'll have to see how that works out. Um, But that wraps up this episode of the Experiential Table. I am so glad that you were able to chat with us, Hethel, about your story and how you entered the food world and all of the things that you're doing now. You have really created an awesome niche for yourself that is inspiring to see. If you're listening and you are toying around with the idea of bringing your expertise online with a virtual cooking class, then I hope you also took away some great nuggets of wisdom from Hethel. To check out the links that we've mentioned in this episode, including Hethel's site, as well as show notes and transcripts, be sure to visit the experientialtable.com. You'll also find a link to join our private Facebook group, also called The Experiential Table. You can join me and your fellow food business owners and marketers as we navigate this crazy new world of online experiences together. Finally, if you loved this episode, then please be sure to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others just like you discover the experiential table so even more businesses and brands can create powerful and meaningful experiences. Thanks for listening. And until next week, get excited to get experiential. <laughs>